This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Like gangster movies in the 30s, cowboy movies in the 60s, and vigilante cop movies in the 80s, superhero and comic book movies have dominated the culture and the box office in the 2000s. They've turned actors into stars and legends. But it looks like 2023 was the kryptonite to the comic book industry. And after years of ongoing success, it looks like the genre is at a crossroads. Am I really inclined to go spend a movie ticket and expensive popcorn to go see that when it's going to be streaming on Max in 30, 40 days? Those are the things you have to think about now. Is America going through superhero fatigue? Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. New Year's is the season when trend watchers are telling us what's going to take over our cultural conversations and ideas are going to be packed into our mental attics to gather dust. And among the cultural forces on the endangered list heading into 2024 are comic book movies. Not long ago, the comic book genre was being touted as the ultimate renewable resource for Hollywood. One blockbuster film could generate years of profitable sequels, spinoffs, and origin stories, not to mention a multiverse of merchandise, books, and television. Like Spider-Man, which spawned the 2023 summer blockbuster film Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Who are you? I'm Miles Morales. But you, you can call me the Prowler. If I don't get home, our dad is going to die. Your dad. Please. You have to let me go. Why would I do that? But 2023 wasn't kind to men and women in spandex on the big or small screen. Almost all of the major Marvel and DC superhero films underperformed at the box office, and some were outright flops. The Flash bombed, the Marvels underperformed, and the recently released Aquaman sunk after its first weekend. Not to mention Jonathan Majors, the actor who was supposed to play the villain Kang, who was supposed to be the linchpin of the next three Avengers films, has been fired after being found guilty in court for assaulting his ex-girlfriend. Is this the end game for comic book movies? And what does that mean for artists of color whose careers in front of and behind the cameras have been bolstered by these comic book films? Join us now to talk about it is David Betancourt. He's the writer of several comic book titles and a book, The Avengers Assembled, the origin story of Earth's Mightiest Heroes. David Betancourt, welcome back to A Word. Thanks for having me. Before we talk about what's happening now, Remind us about how comic books got to the center of sort of movie culture. We've been doing the comic book thing for 20 years. How did it start? You've got to go back to the year 2000. Uh, This current era that we are in, that it's now currently up for debate, whether it's coming to an end or just going through a phase, 
began in the year 2000 with the first X-Men movie with Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Holly Berry, all those folks. That was really the first time where a movie that didn't star Batman or Superman wasn't a Warner Brothers thing produced by DC. Don't forget at the time, Marvel had a horrible track record for cinematic anything back in those days with horrible Captain America movies, horrible Punisher movie with Dolph Lundgren. 2000 is where we get started. That was like kind of the moment where you kind of looked and said, oh, okay, we can make cool superhero movies now. The special effects are where they need to be. And that's when all the other studios started getting involved. Fox, Sony, really the the the, the super big bang moment was 2002 with Tobey Maguire's first Spider-Man movie. 2005, you get Batman Begins with Christian Bale. 2008, that's when things really got serious because that's when the first Iron Man movie comes out, giving birth to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which for a solid decade was strong, going all the way up to 2018 uh, with Endgame. And you had this juggernaut all of a sudden, this interconnected, Marvel Cinematic Universe thing that seemed unbeatable and seemed foolproof at the box office. And now for the first time in 2023, we're starting to ask questions of, is this sustainable? Will this genre survive? Which is a little silly to me. I mean, I personally think that these movies, after 20 years of mostly success in the box office, are in the same stratosphere as comedies, romances, suspense, drama, Westerns, you know, I just watched Bass Reeves the other day on Paramount Plus. Westerns aren't going anywhere. And I don't think these are either. But kind of like in sports, when you have one entity that is known for all the success and that lasts for almost 20 years, you're talking about 15 years of success with Marvel Studios, sometimes seeing the same team win over and over and over again causes a little bit of fatigue for fans. The actors have become a key part of this as well, right? Heath Ledger passing was major because people are like, oh my gosh, this is a film. The Dark Knight is a film when we lose this amazing actor. You know, Hugh Jackman is a theater actor. Like him playing Wolverine gave those movies credibility. Patrick Stewart playing Professor X. Like no one can imagine anyone else playing that role. And so now we're in this sort of interesting situation where the next three Avengers films were supposed to be based on a villain named Kang, played by Jonathan Majors, who was introduced in the Loki miniseries, and now that's been complicated. I want to play you a clip from the finale of Loki season one, where Kang sort of reveals who he is, and we'll talk about it on the other side. It came to kill the devil, right? <laughs> well, guess what? I keep you safe. And if you think I'm evil, well, just wait till you meet my variants. So Kang shows up later on in Ant-Man Quantumania. The movie doesn't do particularly well. But the larger issue is that, hey, you've got this up-and-coming actor, Jonathan Majors, right, who... 15 minutes later, gets into major legal trouble. Now he's out. Based on the fact that this guy was supposed to be the next Thanos, he was supposed to be the next Ultron, the next two or three major MCU and Avengers films were supposed to be based on battling this guy. Now that Jonathan Majors is out, what does that do to the MCU? What does that do to the comic book genre in general? I mean, are, are studios afraid now? Oh my gosh, we can't put our eggs in one basket anymore because... The whole thing could collapse if one person gets in trouble. 
I think that's definitely the biggest issue right now for Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios is how do we address this? There's been recasting in the Marvel Cinematic Universe before. We've seen it with Terrence Howard and, you know, War Machine and Rhodey, that character. This is completely different because you go from replacing a side character, replacing the guy who your entire franchise was going to be built around over multiple movies. Uh, Jonathan Majors Kang was going to be in the same line as Tom Hiddleston's Loki, as Josh Brolin's Thanos. This was the next big guy that every movie was veering towards, every movie, every Disney Plus show was veering towards in one way. Now that's gone. Now, if you watch the final episode of season two of Loki, you can see that it's wrapped up in a way that the significance of Jonathan Major's character, Kang, is, I don't want to say diminished, but it seems like more emphasis is put on Loki than Kang. Had these events that happened with Jonathan Major's where he got in trouble not happened, I don't think the season two of Loki ends that way. So what does that mean in terms of the character? I can't really see them going to the trouble of recasting the character of Kang because of the way Loki season two ended. What I can see them doing is going back to the drawing board and say, okay, we're Marvel Studios, our library is Marvel Comics. There are other big villains out there that we can play with. Uh, someone like Doctor Doom, for example, we know the Fantastic Four is another franchise that, you know, is now under the control of Disney after, you know, the Fox-Disney merger. They're likely going to have to go back to the drawing board, and I truly don't think the next three Avengers films are going to be based on a character who the actor was fired. Something else that's happened this year is the sort of lack of success in certain tentpole movies, right? The Flash was an unmitigated flop. Like everybody knows, the Flash is, it did not do well. Um, the Marvels and Aquaman massively underperformed. And there's a point where you can say, even though there was a writer strike in 2023 and an actor strike that kept people from promoting these films, they still seem to be on the downswing. Do you think this is about the quality of these movies? Or do you think the audience has begun to turn on these movies in general? I think you have to give the audience a little bit more credit in terms of being up to date on what's going on in these worlds. Now, the Marvels is a unique situation because its predecessor, the first Captain Marvel movie, that was a billion dollar movie. But that was also a movie that was connected to the machine that was the march towards Avengers Endgame and the big battle with Thanos. So that that movie had skin in the game before you even saw it. You knew that it was vital to the ending that the MCU was marching towards. It's so ironic that the Marvels and the Aquaman sequel have come out in the same years. Both of those movies made a billion dollars at the box office. Pre-pandemic numbers, but still very significant. But again, I think you've got to give the audience a little bit of credit in saying, you know, whether it's fatigue with the MCU or perhaps Disney spreading themselves too thin with streaming and, you know, really stretching Kevin Feige in too many different directions in terms of what Marvel Studios needs to produce. They're not just focusing on movies anymore. They've got streaming series to think about. Maybe that contributed to a little bit of fatigue. With Aquaman, you've got a situation where the universe that this character is connected to, the fan base already knows that universe doesn't cease to exist anymore. The, the Zack Snyder DC comic book universe no longer exists on film. Aquaman is the end of that. 
Is it the end of Jason Momoa working at DC Studios? No. We all know he's probably going to play Lobo for James Gunn at some point. He looks just like the guy. It'd be stupid if he didn't. But if I know that this world is coming to an end, and I know that there's not going to be anything else involving this Momoa version of Aquaman, am I really inclined to go spend a movie ticket and expensive popcorn to go see that when it's going to be streaming on Max in 30, 40 days? Those are the things you have to think about now. And also, we also have to factor in streaming in terms of comparing these movies to their predecessors that made a billion dollars because they didn't have streaming engines that were going to take it out of theaters in 40 days and let people watch it in their homes. There, there, there are all kinds of factors that have contributed to this, but I just think it's a, a, a really bad situation where you've got the Marvels and you've got Aquaman and the interest or what those things were connected to just wasn't there anymore. The Marvels wasn't connected to the next big Thanos Kang event, it was just, you know, was a sequel to Captain Marvel and a sequel to Miss Marvel. And Aquaman, let's face it, it's a dead universe walking. So you can take that for what it is. I don't think it's indicative of the genre as a whole failing and dying. But I do think you have to give the audience credit in saying, you know, they're looking at these two worlds and saying, I don't see much relevance in these two franchises here before me right now. It's interesting because one of the most successful movies of the year was a cartoon superhero movie. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse was a huge hit this summer. It was a critical success. It was a financial success. And it had so many black and brown people in it. There was Shameik Moore, Gerald Jerome, Brian Tyree Henry, Issa Rae, Mahershala Ali, Daniel Kaluuya. That's not even everybody. I mean, there's tons of different people in the movie. What do you think made this movie stand out? I mean, it was a sequel as well. But it made a ridiculous amount of money and got praise from top to bottom across demographic groups, racial groups, and amongst critics. Here's what I think made both Spider-Verse movies stand out. Uh, Both of those movies came out at a time where Marvel Studios was supposed to be at their dominating peak. And there was a shift that happened around 2012 when the first Avengers movies came out and you had the Avengers movie by Marvel Studios at the time you had Andrew Garfield making Spider-Man movies for Sony. Uh, you had Fox making X-Men movies and it created this void where if a Marvel movie wasn't made by Marvel Studios and your Marvel movie wasn't connected to the interconnected MCU, that's like just all these locked chapters together marching towards something. If your movies weren't connected to that, it, all of a sudden it was like a scarlet letter. What makes the Spider-Verse movie so special is in the the most recent one this year and the previous one that won an Oscar, those movies not only came out and weren't, you know, under the Marvel Studios umbrella, Kevin Feige had nothing to do with those movies. They were so good. And in the animated format, a format that really, you know, you and I are from the generation where when we were growing up, animation was the only way we could get a Batman story, a Superman story or a Spider-Man story. We weren't getting the live action stuff that these kids get now. Like that was just a pipe dream for us. That's not the the case now, but what Spider-Verse did was told an incredible story and it, it just felt like you were in an era that was, you know, almost 20 years deep. Spider-Verse felt like you were watching something you had never seen before. You keep hearing about the repetitiveness, oh, fatigue, oh, all these movies are the same. Well, you can't say that about Spider-Verse because you watch those two movies and you just sit back and you say, "Wow, 
not only have I never seen anything like this before, but this might be the coolest Spider-Man story I've ever seen. And it involves a biracial Spider-Man that connects to two big communities of color. So there were a lot of things going on. But I think the main thing for Spider-Verse was that was the beginning. I don't want to say the beginning of what Marvel Studios is going through now, but it was a huge declaration that it could be Marvel. It didn't have to be Marvel Studios and it could still be good. We're going to take a short break. We come back more on the state of comic book movies and culture. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the state of comic book culture and films with writer David Betancourt. So, David, you know, you and I are both Gen Xers. We have had this conversation, and it's something that's been a significant thing in how I look at the MCU, DCU, comic book movies in general. Growing up, comics were not diverse. I mean, they were, they were not. The 80s and 90s comics were not diverse. 99% of the superheroes were straight white guys, usually some black dude with tattoos who spoke broken English, right? But that has changed in recent years. And the change is not just on the surface, right? Let's find a black guy to take the mantle of a white superhero. Because I remember, again, as a kid, whenever that happened, I was like, oh, this is not going to last long. Like, they're not going to keep, you know, it's just the black version of Iron Man. He's going to lose the job. He's going to face some challenge that he can't deal with and have to give it back, right? Well, now you've got a whole generation of kids who think that Jon Stewart, the black guy, the architect, is Green Lantern. You have a whole generation of kids Kamala Khan is Miss Marvel to them. She's not the brown one. She's Miss Marvel. There are kids who have no conflict between, oh, I know who Peter Parker is, but to them, Miles Morales is just as much Spider-Man as Peter Parker. Why do you think that changed? What happened in the last 20 years? Because while the movies have diversified to a certain extent, right, the comics have gotten really diverse. I think it goes back to the creation of Miles Morales back in the 2010s. And that was such a big event. You know, you and I remember reading those Ultimate Spider-Man comics back in the day. Now, back then, Miles existed in an alternate Marvel universe that was not a part of the continuation of the main 616 Marvel Comics universe. So in a way, you could say it was easy for Marvel to take a chance on a character like that because it wasn't the quote-unquote real Marvel Universe. It was the ultimate Marvel Universe. But don't forget, they killed a very popular character, the ultimate Spider-Man version of Peter Parker, to introduce Miles Morales. Back then in the 2010s, there was not the diversity that there is now amongst creators, amongst artists, amongst writers, amongst editors who were at these comic book companies. Back then, you had Brian Michael Bendis and Sarah Pacelli, the writer and artist who created Miles Morales, And I know because I reported on this, Brian Michael Bendis basically said back in the year 2000, when they created the Ultimate Spider-Man comic book, he said back then is when we should have created Miles. But I don't want to say they didn't have the guts to do it. But for whatever reason, they did in the year 2000, they still weren't ready for that. So fast forward to the 2010s and now you have Miles Morales. But back then you needed a big name in the comics industry to make that work. So Brian Michael Bendis was using his big name to create Miles Morales. And then it was kind of like a domino effect. All of a sudden you got characters like Nova. All of a sudden you got characters like Miss Marvel. And not only because you and I remember whatever representation we got when we were reading comics as kids, 
those comics were generally created by white men, written, illustrated by, edited by. So it, that that was just whatever goodwill they could give in terms of creating characters of color. What Miles Morales did was it not only said, hey, we can take some mantles of pre-existing characters and fill them in with new heroes of color, but we can also bring in writers and artists from those communities as well to give a much more authentic feel uh, of what we're presenting these characters with. So to me, there are a lot more diverse comics out there. There are a lot more diverse choices. And I always go back to that decision to create Miles Morales back then as a domino effect that opened the doors for not only heroes that can look like that on the page, but creators, writers, and artists who can also be from those communities making those comics as well. If we look at the future of you know big genre superhero movies, looking at the future and past, we still don't have many that have been headlined by people of color. We have Blue Beetle that came out this summer, uh, part of potentially a dying universe. You had Black Panther and Wakanda Forever. Uh, sometime either in 2024 or 2025, the next Captain America film, Anthony Mackie, formerly the Falcon, will be taking over. But there are still prominent black comic book characters that haven't been turned into movies that have big names, live action films. No one's tried to make a Storm movie. I could argue Storm is at least as well known as Wonder Woman, certainly if you're talking about Zoomers. No one's attempted to make a cyborg TV show, or I mean, it's essentially a sci-fi movie. You know, it's a fairly known character, certainly people who grew up watching Teen Titans Go. Is there still a fear in Hollywood as a reporter covering this? Is there still a fear in the business that we've got to have these movies linked to prominent white guys. We're still, you know, Black Panther was nice. That was lightning in a bottle. Chadwick's gone. So we're never going to try that again. You think there's still concern out there about having superhero movies that are headlined by people who aren't straight and white? I think there's definitely slight concern there. Take Blue Beetle, for example. Whenever a movie like that comes out, so you've got Angel Manuel Soto, who was a Puerto Rican director of that uh, the writer of Blue Beetle was Mexican. The cast was predominantly Mexican, both both sides of the border. When a movie like that comes out, the cast, the director, the writers, the producers, there's all this pressure to succeed because it's like, okay, we gave you your little Latino superhero movie, but if it doesn't do well, we're not going to do that again. So that's what when I when I was reporting on Blue Beetle and I saw that movie and it blew me away and I went in fully expecting for it just to be irrelevant. I thought that it was DCEU fodder and that it wasn't going to matter in the big scheme of what James Gunn is building towards the future. Uh, totally flipped the script when I saw it. The movie blew me away. It connected to me as someone who's half Latino and grew up in that culture, not Mexican culture, but there's enough, you know, the Blue Beatles, Mexican writer and Puerto Rican director were able to find enough similarities within themselves to make the production of that movie work. And it connected with me, but you had a Hollywood strike. You had D Zack Snyder universe fatigue. There were all these things going against that movie. So the unfortunate thing is movies like that can be made, but if they don't do well, it always, you know, is a huge indicating factor on, in terms of whether a movie like that can be made again. And is that fair? No, you know, if, if one superhero movie bombs with a superhero that's not a person of color, you think they're going to stop making superhero movies? Absolutely not. And as long as these things keep making money, they'll they'll be made. It's it's not the case when it's someone like us 
uh, under the mask or with the cape on or whatever you want to call it, the the rules are a little different. How much pressure does that put on even the actors who are looking at these roles? I mean, do they think to themselves, man, if I do if I do this film and it fails, I may be derailed forever, right? As like, oh, you're the you're the Latino American actor who did this movie and it flopped. We're never going to let you do anything again. Is is it? Are people are possibly afraid of taking these roles if they have the opportunity? I think there is, you know, whether or not you could get the actor to admit that or not, there are pressures in the superhero genre if you are representing, if you're basically representing your community for the first time in this genre. You are going to feel that because everyone in the community is going to tell you how big of a deal it is. Simu was absolutely hearing that from his people when Shang-Chi came out. Blue Beetle was a little different because the actors were on a strike. They couldn't go out and promote it. So Zola Mariduena wasn't able to go out there and feel the impact that the movie was having on the Latino community. But I absolutely do think that there are times and part of it is because, you know, these movies aren't frequent. You know, there haven't been three Shang-Chi movies. We got two Black Panther movies. We may not get another one. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with Blue Beetle. So I think there's always this feeling that you have one chance to get it right, one chance to hit it out of the park. And I think that does add uh, a little bit of pressure. But also at the same time, I, I do think these actors bring a certain level of pride in being able to potentially be the first to represent their communities in a, in a role like that. You know, the American right has jumped onto the superhero genre in a major way in like probably the last five years. You've always had conservatives, but now in this era where so many things move so quickly to streaming and so much conversation is driven by what's happened online, you have these sort of hard right elements with their go woke, go broke mantra, review bombing films before they even come out. And we saw an example of this with the Marvels. You had, you know, stories, and I'm sure we reported them, stories of 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 RottenTomatoes.com where just thousands of people would come and give the Marvels one star as a review before the movie came out. Or reviews that said that the Marvels was a terrible film and it was garbage. And these were reviewers who had never commented on any other film in the entire history of Rotten Tomatoes, but came out to attack this film. How has the right moving into the comic space as the next part of the culture war affected the bottom line of these films? How does it affect a movie like Marvel's? How does it affect a movie like Blue Beetle? What kind of concerns do does the industry have now that, hey, if we if we make a movie that that has a gay superhero, if we make a movie that acknowledges the fact that, oh, they were actually black superheroes it might get attacked and it might get tanked online before we even get into theaters. That's definitely, um, I'd say, at the advent of social media, something that uh, it's really kind of the two sides of social media. Part of the reason we're here today with the Miles Morales era that started in the 2010s, where you've got all these diverse superheroes, a huge part of that was that there were young readers online of comic books from communities of color that said, hey, we're here. We like comics. We like to see people that look like us. And then you have the other side of that, which are communities a lot a lot of times older, who, you know, the first 75 years of Superman, everything was, you know, status quo, that say, I don't like these changes. They're making me uncomfortable. Why are you being like this and changing something that's been like this for almost a century? Uh, there's really... 
you know, this, this is something that I've gone through. I, when, as a comic book culture reporter at the Washington Post, I wrote a lot about those characters, the Kamala Khans, the, the Miles Moraleses. And every now and then you get a comment like, oh, you're a diversity hire. That's the only reason you got your job and this and that. And it was just white noise to me. Like, you know, I, you, you know, those groups are there and they're going to think that way. But it's like Jay-Z said back in the day, you don't like my new stuff? Listen to the old stuff. And there's literally like eight decades, nine decades of old stuff that is crafted exactly the way you want it to be. Literally almost a century of comics that you can dive into and not worry about bumping into a kid that's African-American and Puerto Rican and can climb on a wall. So it's very much, a, a you know, sometimes you have to block out the noise a little bit and just say, you know, as someone who's written comics for Marvel featuring Miles Morales, you know, I always try and add an element where, you know, I, I want it to be obvious that this is being written by someone that walks in both of the cultural worlds that Miles Morales walks in. And I realize that there's some people that aren't going to get that and maybe don't appreciate that. I can't let that impact how I craft uh, the story for that particular character. You know, you, you, you have to, at some point, acknowledge that that stuff is there but not let it prevent you from telling the story you want to tell. We're going to take a short break. We come back more about the current state of comic book culture and film with writer David Betancourt. This is a word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of a word slates podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the future of comic book culture and films with writer David Betancourt. So we've talked about this uh, throughout this interview. The DC universe of films, the Zack Snyder universe of films. If you uh, have been watching the last, you know, Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman um, and uh, Ezra Miller as Flash, Jason Momoa as Aquaman. Um, if you have been watching those movies, they're coming to an end. And the person in charge of sort of the new iteration of DC films is James Gunn, who uh, directed some of the popular Suicide Squad films and the Guardians of the Galaxy films. He is about to embark on an amazing creative journey. I mean, if it just comes to what Americans are familiar with, I bet you you got as many Americans who can tell you the story of Superman's birth as can tell you like the birth of Jesus, right? Like it's an American myth at this point. Guy comes from another planet, crashes here. So he's he's got a wonderful library that he's working with. And he has the benefit of having seen the previous 15 to 20 years of Marvel films. Do you think we're going to see a renaissance of superhero movies with James Gunn. I mean, he's got a, a a new Superman plan. He's got several films down the road. Or do you think they're going to be sort of stepping into a market uh, that has been saturated for so long that people are going to be like, eh, we got Superman at home. I am on the side of the conversation that believes we are near a renaissance happening. And I say that because, first, let, let's talk about the Snyderverse. The Aquaman sequel, that's it. No more, no more, no more Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. No more Wonder Woman. 
no more Aquaman, no more Flash. That era, I'll give Zack Snyder credit because when I look at a poster of that Justice League team, if you had a time machine and can send that to me as an 11-year-old and say, hey, this is going to be the Justice League movie. Look at these actors. They've It passes every visual. Comics is a very visual medium. And if you just look at that roster put together, it passes every visual tip from Henry Cavill to Gal Gadot to Momoa. Every like it just pops. But the, but the suit was nice. Affleck wasn't good, but that was a damn good Batman suit. One of the best, most comic book accurate suits ever. But that's what I mean. It visually it passed the test, but it, in terms of quality storytelling, it did not. On top of the fact that they pinned themselves into a corner by instead of doing what Marvel did and gradually introducing us to each member through their own franchises and then putting them together, they just said, we're going to put it all together now. And that was a bad idea. And that's why this universe is now RIP. Having said that, moving to James Gunn. James Gunn is someone, regardless of what you say about the current state of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there is no denying that they have dominated the box office for 15 years. That's not an easy thing to do. James Gunn comes from that success. It's the equivalent of a team wins a Super Bowl and all the bad teams go and raid their coaches. You know, he is from that Kevin Feige coaching tree. He's also someone who made some of the best Marvel Studios movies with some of the least known characters. I've been reading comics for over three decades for most of my life, and I could not have told you who Groot was when that movie first came out. And that's somebody who had been reading Spider-Man comics since, you know, before, you know, they were 10 years old. James Gunn was able to do that and build a very successful trilogy off of characters that nobody knew or cared about. Why? Because he could craft a good story. Now he's going to take that great storytelling ability that was a part of the formulaic success of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and apply it to a library of characters that are much more well-known. The DC Universe, whatever you want to say about the last 10 years and about how wrong they got it, Justice League bombing, Suicide Squad not being good, whatever you want to say, there's no denying that these characters are iconic. 50 years from now, there's still going to be Batman movies. Will the super superhero genre be the same 50 years from now? Who knows? But will there be Batman movies in 50 years? Absolutely. James Gunn is now inheriting an iconic library of characters. And starting in 2025, we're going to get his Superman movie. And I really do think people always say, is the MCU dying? Is the MCU? I don't think the MCU is dying. What I think the MCU is preparing for is to drop the second place. And that's something that we're just not used to seeing because they've been dominant for 15 years. But I do think James Gunn's storytelling ability, the success he's had with characters that the general public did not know, you apply that to someone like Superman, and now you have this guy as the architect of a universe that's going to be connected. I think that bodes pretty well for Warner Brothers and DC. I want to make sure that we mention uh, that your work on reporting on comic book culture for the Washington Post is coming to an end. And it's interesting because, you know, there weren't that many people at sort of your your classic newspaper traditional media that were covering things. I think you had Hero Clicks at one point that was at the LA Times, even though it was this billion dollar industry, right? Like what other industry can you is making that much money, um, but you didn't have a specialized reporter. So you were in a unique position. Now that you are leaving, what do you think has changed about how 
superhero movies are covered, how they're reported on. You know, are you leaving and there's more people doing it now? Do you think there are fewer reporters doing it now? Um, has it basically, has your job sort of been replaced by people on TikTok and Instagram who are just doing commentary without any sort of journalistic background? What do you think is different about the reporting on superhero films as you're stepping out of that role with Washington Post? I think that whether it be the Post, whether it be the New York Times, LA Times, comics have become big enough that when something happens within the culture, I think they've realized, hey, we should have somebody that speaks this language. We should have someone who, when they announce the new big villain for the MCU, whoever it's going to be, we should have somebody that can write that down and for the people that really get this stuff. Do I think that translates to places like the Washington Post and New York Times taking it more seriously and saying, we need to have a dedicated reporter on this because the culture's gotten so big? No, that's why I'm leaving. If I felt like that were the case, I wouldn't have taken the buyout from the Washington Post. I would have continued to do the reporting that I had been doing, you know, in the 16 years that I've been there. I loved being a comic culture reporter. I got into journalism because I, I wanted to be Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. I thought I was going to be a sports reporter. I never imagined that the one thing I loved more than sports, which was comics, would take over entertainment in such a way that it became mainstream enough that I could write about it for over a decade at a place like the Washington Post. That's something I'll always cherish. That's something I'll always be proud of. But it's also something that I feel I've done enough of that I can move on to the next phase of my career as a writer and that means, you know, hopefully writing more books and fiction, you know, creating my own universes, writing for Marvel, writing for DC, hopefully some creator own comics down the line. Uh, those are the things I foresee for myself for David Betancourt, the writer in the future. David Betancourt is a journalist and author. His latest book is The Avengers Assembled, the origin story of Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.